welcome to our podcast. Not prod. I can't. It's a pod. I think I think I need to teach language more colleges right about now. Let's try that one again. Hello, SL peeps. Welcome to True Confessions with Lisa and Sarah. Okay, can start confessing now. This is so cheesy. <laughs> Hi, Sarah. Normally, I say that, you know, it's not like I haven't seen you in a while, but I actually haven't seen you in a while. I know. It's been very weird. I do know. I still look pretty? You do. Yes. Yeah. It's really good to see you live and in person. Sweet. Yeah. But now we've got somebody actually who's virtually with us here, too. Do you want to introduce him? Yes. Okay. I'm super excited today because I feel like our guest today, this conversation is going to be awesome because his name is Lloyd Donders. Did I say that right? You absolutely did. There we go. But my favorite part of his name, Esquire. <laughs> Lisa it makes me loves think. that title. She used to call me Esquire back in the day when we were like first starting out. And I wore all the hats, including attorney. Well, <laughs> and I also put it when I used to book our flights on Southwest and you could pick a title. Sarah was often Esquire. And oh. sometimes DDS. Sometimes. You, you never knew right. what she was going to get. <laughs> But um, so super happy to have you here today so we can talk about probably one of the things that strikes the uh, fear, puts fear in the heart of every um, IEP team member, having an attorney at a meeting. So we're going to hopefully alleviate some of those fears today. Let's just start out a little bit. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into special education law in particular? Sure. So I've been practicing in special education probably for about six years now. Uh, I've been an attorney for close to 20 years. Um, I got into it like many do. Um, I have a child with special needs. uh, So I actually was fighting for my child before I knew anything really about special education law. Uh, But it was a big learning curve. And I was able and continue, thankfully, to get him what he needs, or at least what we think he needs. Uh, and going through this as an attorney just made me really realize that there's so many people out there, so many parents who don't know what their children are entitled to. Uh, and sometimes the schools don't either, but uh, you know, the parents just don't know what they can push for, and they often accept what's true from the, from the schools. So I really started getting into this. I, I'm in New York. I don't know if I, if I mentioned that. Uh, and I do a lot of work with underrepresented uh, children in New York City, uh, which has been very rewarding. Uh, so I've been able to do a lot with that. And uh, New York City, the largest population of students, and is over 200,000 children with IEPs. So it definitely keeps me busy. So when you say that, um, you work a lot with underrepresented uh, underrepresented children, what do you mean by that? So basically, the parents who just can't afford my fees. Uh, you may not have heard, but but attorneys can be expensive. <laughs> um, so the, the beautiful thing about how special education law works is what we have what's called fee shifting, which basically means that if I take a child's case and I go to a hearing and I prevail and I get the child what he or she needs, I can actually get my fees paid for by the district. Um, so that really allows me to reach out to parents and to reduce my fees significantly or in some instances not even um, charge them anything uh, for cases that especially that are the most egregious. Uh, and it takes me a while to get paid, but it, you know I do eventually get paid and, uh, and I, it's, I can help kids that would never be able to get the services that they get. So it's a great well, And I will say um, a, a big bulk of my work in an elementary school in Arizona was at a school that was 99% free and reduced lunch. And so I know with um, those families, it was kind of like a, a split kind of sword where they so appreciated everything you were doing for their children, but they weren't always the best advocates because I'm not sure that they had um, the knowledge or information, even though we're, we're giving it to them in like, you know, pamphlets and trying to help advocate and educate for their child. We were doing what we thought was best for the child, but I did feel like there weren't as many questions or weren't as many, um, things being pushed for in that kind of setting as some of our, the other schools in our school district that had parents that were pushing and pushing back at the IEP team. Sure. Yeah. And, and honestly, I mean, I still see that. I mean, you definitely see that with more, if you will, sophisticated or a little bit more worldly parents, usually more affluent. Um, but there are plenty of attorney parents that I speak to that 
still feel overwhelmed in this area and they just don't know where to go. And they, and they feel actually very sheepish when they talk about it. But so it applies to everyone. It isn't just the parents that, you know, that are, um, don't have that, that experience. It's, it's interesting. Yeah, it's really true. I had an experience with um, a, having a sibling that went through the process of having IEPs and my mom having to go to those meetings. And then later in life, as we were talking about it, she, you know, she's an educated woman. She runs her own business. Um, and she would sit in those meetings and she would just nod because she had no idea what they were talking about. And so she, she didn't she just assumed these are the experts. Yep. They're doing what's right for her son. And she just would agree to things. Um, and so that's one thing I always kept in the back of my mind in IEP meetings to make sure that we're being very um, cautious about the terms we're using, the language we're using, you know, that we're, that we're being very inclusive of the parents and making them feel, you know, very much a part of the team. Because I thought I never wanted anybody to walk away from a meeting feeling like that, you know? Yeah. And actually, it's interesting when you're saying that um, a lot of the parents that I speak to, um, and I, I don't, I'm not a very litigious attorney, which sounds kind of funny, but I don't, I don't push litigation all the time. There's plenty of it out there that I don't really have to push it. Um, but I've been doing this long enough, so I kind of know how things usually go. Uh, and actually, maybe you know, people who work in the schools probably don't understand this, but very often the, the parents that come to me, these are not parents who got upset about one IEP meeting. Okay. These are, this is building, this is building. And often what happens is I'll have a parent set up a a consultation with me and they'll say, you know, my child's falling behind, not getting what he or she needs. The school says they're giving him what he needs and yada, yada, yada. He's sort of making a little bit of progress. And I talk to them and I'm like, yeah, well, they're, you know, they need to be doing X, Y, and Z. And often the parent will say, yeah, but I think I'm just going to try to stick it out and see what happens. And I say to them, I'm like, look, that's, I completely understand. Here's my card. I said, you're going to be calling me in two or three years and you're going to be saying, Lloyd, those SO whatevers, I can't believe what they're doing to the, to my kid. They hate him. And this, and that's just what happens. Unfortunately, sometimes it doesn't, but Often that's what happens. You know, it's a, it's a, a pro, it's progress or not progress really. It's just a um, a natural way that things flow. So by the time the parents are coming to me, they've got years under their belt of just feeling dissatisfied and anger. Um, so that's when I'm really getting involved, and that's often when the, when the schools are getting the real pushback. So that's what you are going to be seeing. Yeah. So the majority of your cases then are kids that are already identified as um, being eligible in special education, or do you get parents that are pushing to have their child um, qualified, or is it a, a healthy mix of both? Right. Well, I think a lot of this is going to de- also depend upon the state. In New York, there's less of an issue. It's been my experience. There's less of an issue with identification. It definitely still happens. Um, but New York tends to identify their, their kids more frequently than I think other states from what I hear. Uh, so usually it has to do with what services they're getting. So how much service are they getting? How, um, how many you know, sessions a week are they getting? What are they getting specialized reading instruction? Uh, or even beyond that, certainly, you know, does this child need an out-of-district placement, a private school? Uh, so that's more about what I see, less with the uh, actual identification. But we do get some in New York, definitely. Well, I think, too, here in Arizona, our identification is very loose in terms of, I know, like, I think it's California that says you have to have two tests that are one and a half standard deviations below the mean. The mean. And in Arizona, it's just, is there a, dis- uh, a disability? Is there an educa- an adverse educational impact? And is it only correctable with special education? So I feel like that gives us a lot of flexibility as a team that, you know, sometimes you'll see even in our speech language forums that are on Facebook groups where people are like, I can't believe they qualified a kid because they got an 84 on the self. And I'm like, but that's still below average. And that still can have a significant impact on that child's performance in the classroom. So that score, in addition to other data being presented at the team. Well, and even if you have a standardized score of something like an 87, right, that technically is in that average range, 
you can still make the qualifying decisions based on, again, their their impact. Depending on the state you're in, because right. there are some states that have it yeah. very spelled out. And I'm curious, I know you had, before we had actually started recording, you had shared a statistic with us about um, averages in um, percentage of students that are found eligible. Sure. Can you share that with us again? Sure. So um, uh, nationally, it's a about 13% of um, American students are classified as um, needing an IEP. Uh, and the reason I point to that is because you do have some fluctuation. For instance, uh, Texas has had a lot of issues, and they were at like 8 or 8.5%. Um, but they were also accused by the federal government of keeping their rates artificially low. And I won't get into exactly why that is, but when you look at 8% versus 13%, Say what you will about Texas, they're not that different from the rest of the country. Um, so right now, they're paying for it. The population, yeah. though, because I know that we can get dinged in special education as well for over-identifying as far as um, Spanish-speaking students. So sure. I wonder if that would be a huge influence in a state like Texas where they're trying to maybe overcorrect that and yeah. um, that could have but some impact. It, it wouldn't. It wouldn't make that much of a, uh, of a difference. And also, I mean, the government's looked into it and there have been uh, like one of the local newspapers looked into it in investigations and none of that would um, would be attributable to why there's such a huge decrease. So now they just have a huge number of evaluations going on. But now in New York, like New York, I do a lot of work in New York City, um, identification is about 20 percent. So it's a big difference. Um, and some say that's too much. Some people say it's too little. You know, we can kind of discuss that, but whatever it is, I mean, all I can say is that a child that's identified is more likely to get the services that they need. So that's what I look at. I had a special educator that kind of always likened it to that that eligibility piece is your golden ticket into that individualized education. So then it doesn't matter what your actual eligibility, the, the label is on your um, MET report, it's just once you get that, everything should then be personalized around the needs of that student. And I kind of, we would get into discussions, especially if you have students that are SLI or speech only, speech language only, and then they would have something like a math need. And so we would have pushback from SLPs that were like, well, I'm not working or teaching math. And kind of how we framed it is, it's not that you're teaching math, it's student is identified as special education. This is identified need. So we have to make sure we're meeting that need. We that the need is getting met by um, the, the interventions they're doing in general education. It may mean that your team needs to come together and look and see why that is happening. So okay. it's super. I mean, I think the whole thing, it, it, even as you, we were talking about how there are parents that aren't always super savvy about the whole process. I think of my evolution from when I started to where I'm at now and still have a ton more to learn and grow, but I did get to learn a lot more throughout the course of being an SLP for 20 years that if you would have asked me in, you know, early in my career, I would have not had any answers for even know like how to respond, where to go, or what even makes sense. It's, it's, it's tricky. Yeah. And yeah, I, I actually just wanted to sort of get back to you talking about the, the self and how, you know, the scores, 84, 87. The only thing I want I would want to point out is that, and this comes from the IDEA, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, the federal law, as well as federal guidance, um, CSE should not be relying on any one test. Yeah. So, you know, you're looking, I mean, if you're talking about I don't know, let's say vocabulary and the self, and you're looking at like an 85, which is right on that, what you consider the cutoff. But then you're looking at, you know, the Woodcock Johnson, the vocabulary is a different number. And then you're also getting feedback from the teacher saying, I'm not seeing this issue. I, I'm not seeing or I am seeing. You have to take all that into account. Um, and just looking at one score is not allowed. Uh, you shouldn't be doing. It's not good practice. Certainly, uh, some kids do better on some exams, as you and you will know better than I do. As far as you know, some are better with with writing, and it'll come out more with vocabulary. Some are better visually. So you really need to look at all of them to get a complete picture. Uh, yeah, I actually uh, just saw it, there was something in a, a Facebook group that we're a part of um, for school-based um, SLPs that's coming out about the self five um, and some kind of maybe some negative, and I haven't done enough research to be able to probably attest to it very much, but that maybe it's not doing a great job of, of um, 
qualifying students, that maybe it's not doing a good enough job of showing um, that there is an actual need in some of those areas. And so beyond that, even if the test was solid and, and you know, the interpretation of it was fantastic, we, we know and we t- preach to this all the time, you've got to have more information than just that standardized assessment. You know, obviously, informal screening measures and language sampling and, like you said, homework samples and what the teacher's showing you. and Observation. Observation. All of those things are involved in those determinations. But that's sometimes what I see when our we worked in the largest district in Arizona. And what sometimes when we would get requests for outside evaluations, all they would do is a laundry list of standardized tests. And mm-hmm. to me, that's just as bad as giving one standardized test. And I, I don't want to have a battery of 20 standardized tests, that doesn't give me all the information either. Right, I right. want all of that other information um, that you just had talked about, all of that descriptive informal stuff, because that's really what holistically shows how that student can put it together in other yeah, contextualized ways. Yeah. No, it's important. Definitely. So I just wanted to make sure that that's sort of yeah. out there as well. No, I'm glad you brought uh, that you're, up. You're not supposed to have those firm cutoffs of like, oh, it has to be one and a half standard deviations. Right. There's also rule, like, rules against that as well. It shouldn't be that formalized. So how do states get away with that? Because I see that all the time yeah. in um, even the Facebook groups. And I, I don't know why California is coming to mind. I feel like they're a state that does that. But there are other states that do have that as part of their eligibility um, requirements. Yeah. Right. I, you know, I don't know how the other states do. I mean, I, I look at the, you know, I, obviously I know the most about New York State, and that tends to be, it's, you know, it's a very liberal state. We have a lot of education laws, and it's sort of the, the best for, well, I shouldn't say the best, but one of the better ones for special education. Uh, but even the federal law, you know, says that you're not supposed to do this. So they start looking at, um, you know, the whole idea of discrepancy, you know, the difference between cognitive versus achievement, um, that the federal law says that you're not supposed to do this. You're not supposed to require it. But then I see some states, they still have it in their um, in their regulations. And I don't know how they get away with it. Maybe they don't get challenged as much. Um, but I don't know. But it's not supposed to be, you know. Yeah. We did a podcast episode um, last year about um, some articulation norms and qualifying students that have speech sound disorders um, primarily. And as she said the same thing just about the the difference in state laws um, and how much it varies across the board. And I, I think that I, I always find that interesting when there's IDEA, you know, yeah. why there is any discrepancy on what it is that we're doing as far as qualifying students. But, but that's part about, I think, where you live, like we've always talked about, like when, when I worked in like our district here, they would talk about how there are certain states that are very big on letting, leaving the control with the LEAs, with those local education agencies. And so the laws that filter down, it's the interpretation of that federal law, and then it filters down through the state law. And that's kind of how those get set up. And so I know Arizona is one where they don't want to be told, you know, the LEAs don't want to be told what to do. So they give a lot of local control. Mm. And that's why it can even be not even the variance from state to state, but within a state. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, you'll see that. And also, I mean, you, you don't have very many impartial hearings out there. Uh, in New York, we have a, tr- a huge number of them. And why is that? Is it because we we sue so much in New York? Well, that might be part of it. I don't know. <laughs> uh, I have to admit. But part of it also is because you can do something. Because we have hearing officers that are pretty knowledgeable with the, with the facts. Mm-hmm. And it's still an uphill uh, battle for parents. But at least they know if they spend the money, they have a pretty decent chance of getting having some success um that's why we have so many hearings and that that has an effect on on the law and how schools also have to enforce it because they do know that there's always a possibility of being taken to hearing um and a lot of other states they don't have that as much and i hear horror stories about other states and how that works so and then when you're describing the number of hearings that causes me horror (laughs) 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 because i'm again coming from the other side of the table you know and and we talked about this a little bit before is you know Nobody wants to hear those words that attorneys come into the meeting, you know, or, or an advocate's coming to the meeting or we're going to do process or where there's going to be a hearing. And um, and so from that angle, you know, how do we avoid it? What you know, what is it? What's the main thing that's causing it to get to this point? And what is it that we need to be doing? Um, because I really do think that I don't know a single team I have ever worked with that is, you know, wanting to be 
uh, what's the word I'm trying to say? Like, not their, their goal is not to not provide the best services for students. How can we be proactive versus yes. reactive, I think is what you're asking. Right. And then even in the situation, not only how can we avoid it, but if it does come up, what are some ways that we can make the process smooth for everyone involved? Right. Sure. So I, I probably will start with, well, first of all, if, if that's the way you're feeling in your schools, that's great. Um, because I do deal with a lot of schools and um, speech and language therapists and school psychologists who don't, ju- let's just say they have some conflicts uh, as far as the constituencies. And though they want what's best for the child, there are still some you know, there's some cost constraints as well. And even though schools are not supposed to uh, take that into consideration, they do. And I have seen and I have heard from professionals in the schools who feel handicapped by um, by the special education chair chairperson uh, about not giving out services. So that it does it does happen. You know, I'm not going to say it happens all the time, but to say that it doesn't happen at all is is not true. Um, but that being said, about what you can do. Uh, it's probably best to say to go through what I look for in a case. And that's the easiest way. Um, so, I mean, basically, when you're putting together an IEP, and obviously we're focusing on the speech and language, um, everything always starts with the evaluations, always, because you don't know what to do with a child until you know the strengths and weaknesses. So the first thing I want to see is what does the evaluation look like? You know, are you looking, are there standardized tests? Is there uh, a classroom observation, uh, feedback from the teachers? I'm looking at all these evaluations to see, do we have a good sense as to what the, the strengths and weaknesses are? Not just scores. That's what right. I mean. Not yeah. just scores. Yeah. Just not- scores do matter, but not just scores, definitely. Right. The thing I like about scores, of course, is that it, it gets rid of a lot of the subjectivity. So right. it, they are important. Um, but I should say also, putting together the IEP, it, ha- it should go through this particular um, process. So you start with, the, with your strengths and weaknesses through the evaluations. And then once you identify the weaknesses, of course, then you have to identify the goals. What are, you, what are your goals? Okay, you know, a child's reading two years behind. Um, so within a one year, you want to see them reading, you know, only one year behind, or ideally a little bit less than one year, because you want to try to narrow the gap. So what are the goals? Are they realistic? Are they ambitious? That's what we kind of getting to Andrew F., which we'll get to later. Um, and are they, um, are they measurable? So you want realistic goals that are measurable, uh, and you want to be able to have progress reports that you can actually see what kind of progress the child's making, because goals are meaningless unless you can actually see if you're making them. So that's the next step that I'm looking at. The third step is saying, okay, so we have these goals. How do we get the child to meet those goals? So that's when you start looking at your aids and supports and just your the actual special education that we think of, accommodations. So, you know, speech and language, you need to have individual therapy. Do you, can you have group therapy? How many times a week? How much time each? Um, you know, accommodations, you need assistive technology. How are we going to help this child meet these goals? That's what I'm looking at. So it's not cookie cutter and looks like the same services provided to every other student that may have different needs. Likely, Correct. every student has different needs from one another. Because, of course, special education has to be individualized, right. specialized for the unique child. So that's what I'm looking for. Does that make sense? So then once we have that, you basically at that point... Um, once you have all the accommodations and you have your, that's your program. Okay. That's the P and IEP, the individualized education program. Once you have that program, the last step is where's the location of that program. So is that going to be done in the school? Uh, is that going to be done in, you know, 12 to one or, or collaborative class or whatever, or does the child have such needs that it has to be done in a private school? Um, but whatever it is, it's still that program. It's just where is that program going to be? Is going to happen? So it's that whole process. Okay. Um, so then, once we do that, then what I'm looking for from year to year is okay. Did this child meet his goals? Did they make progress toward his goals? If the child didn't make uh, didn't meet his goals, then I'm looking at did the supports change? Okay. So let's say you had a child that was supposed to make a year's progress. In, in reading, uh, and the child was getting two times a week in speech and language, 
uh, for 30 minutes, and that child didn't make very much progress. But then the next year, the child still has the same goals and still has that same level of support. Then I start to say, well, you know, if it didn't work one year, what makes you think it's going to work the next year? And that you might have a reason like for it. That Andrew case. That was the huge yeah. thing in that case. And you start getting like, like these recycled um, goals as well, and and the supports like it's, it you know like they say about the definition of um, what was that, being crazy. Yeah, insanity. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> repeat, you know? right? And, and that's and that's what I'm looking for. I mean, other things I'm looking for. Do goals just all of a sudden miraculously vanish? Um, <laughs> yep. That happens, right? They just, oh, what happened to the goal? You know, looking under the table. Where did they go? Where did they go? It's like, no, but if they explain why. So I think this is my thing that I always see with teams is they come at it with good intentions. You know, most most people come at it with a, with what they think is right. And it could be that a goal disappears because you felt like it, maybe it was too ambitious and we had data that, to support that we tried all of this, this different stuff and weren't able to get there. So we need to take it back and, and do something else. But if you just go to that next IEP and there is no transition of where that thought came from and no explanation and no data that supports that, that's where I think teams can get in trouble because things can go out the window. I mean, right. But he's saying that the goal just disappears. Like it never is talked about again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No explanation. It's like, right. you know, and it's right. like, like they have these writing goals and all of a sudden they're gone. It's like, Oh, this so the child never has to write again. Like, <laughs> what is this? But you're right. I mean, there might be a reason for it, but you need to have an explanation. Right. And that's the hardest part. Yeah. I think that even I found when I used to have to go to a lot of these meetings because I was the lead in our district. And um, that was my takeaway in these meetings is that people would present information about, you know, lots of I thinks, I wants, and not just the IEP team. Sometimes we got that from the parents, from the advocates, mm-hmm. from the attorneys, um, just depending on who was, you know, present in that meeting. And I know, like, I even worked in a school district once where a kid got a purple leather rocking chair. I talk about this in one of our <laughs> presentations that we do, just because the, it was requested by the advocate or attorney and the family, and the district didn't want to push back. So, you know, my thoughts are, is that if we have these explanations, that's where people get in trouble, is if you're just like, this is what it is, because I think it is, because I'm the expert and I'm the professional. And that goes on both sides of the table that we really need to be looking at the data. We really need to be looking at the child and have that information of this is, let's try this because this is what the data shows. And then like you were saying, if there's no progress after a quarter, then let's look at that and say, well, why isn't there? Is it because we're still working on underlying skills? Well, let's put that in the progress report that that's where we're at, that we want to get to that goal in a year, but we're right here. Or maybe we need to change how we're providing our instruction. Maybe we need to change the frequency, but we can't just wait that entire year to have those conversations. So that's where I think you get into the like, surprise, (laughs) game or surprise, it's gone. And that's not good for anyone. No. And I think a lot of these things, like you're saying it, and it makes it, it makes complete logical sense, right? It just does. Um, and a, a lot of times, you know, people are thinking, "Well, you you attorneys are just nitpicking. You're going after this and that." I'm like, "But we're going after the things that make sense." You know, like yeah, there's a lot of deference that goes towards school psychologists and and, and is given to the school speech and language therapists. There's a lot of deference that go toward their expertise, but we don't just accept what they say at you know at, at as fact, like they have to have something behind it. They have to show that, that they put thought into it, that there was consideration and that it, and at some point that it just isn't crazy. I'm for lack of a better word, you know? No, I, I, we've talked about this all the time coming from a place of like, I'm the first to throw myself under a bus, you know, and, and just, you know, how I've evolved through the years just because of my experience. But, you know, we, we have great schooling, and we get a lot of theory, and then we come into the real world, and especially when you go into a school system, and now you're dealing with IEPs and paperwork, it's very different than being a private school uh, private therapist, and um, it just rocks your world a little bit. And then you're trying to manage these large caseloads and all of these other things, and so something's got to give. And so I know when I would walk into meetings, 
I felt like I, I knew these chi- these children or these students that I was working with, and I felt like I was on the right page with it. But if you had asked for Why? data to yeah. back it up, Why are I you would have panicked. That? I yeah. absolutely would have panicked because I wouldn't have had that evidence. We actually have a worksheet that we share that we call it a meaningful IEP worksheet. Let's see if we can attach it to this episode okay. as well. But it's kind of taking that as far as what is your data, as far as what you have on the student, what is the data you're getting from the teacher and, and the parents. So what are the strengths and needs. And then if you have a need, how are you addressing that? Is it specially designed instruction where you're mapping out goals? uh, And how much time do you think you need to work on those goals? And then, or is it accommodations? Maybe something you can work with the teacher um, on. And so I always like direct support having that because I could really map out my thinking. And again, do I do this necessarily for, if I have a student that is a single sound articulation error, and I have a lot of clinical experience that I know I can get the student moving based on prior experience. And then if it doesn't work out as planned, I would, you know, reassess that. But my complex students, I loved going through a framework like that because I did feel like it was individualized. There was thought. And I would bring that sheet into a meeting even and just kind of, it was about that data. It wasn't about me or what I think necessarily. It's like, this is where these recommendations are coming from. Right. And that was a lot better um, received by teams in that sense than just the, nope, it's this because, you know, he needs it. Right. right. And that's, yeah, and, and that's a hard sell for some people. It is because it's a lot of extra work. But I can tell you if a child is not making progress, and of course this is always coming down to a child is not making progress. A child who's, who's doing great, I, I mean, if you're not keeping records, it doesn't do me any good because it's like no harm, no foul. Right. Um, but if a child's not doing well, I'm going to be saying, well, what do the progress reports say? You know, show me what, you know, show me your report, show me the, um, the assessments that you've been doing on the child. I want to see emails. I want to see, I want to see dates on them. I don't want to just see that it was something two days before an IEP meeting. (laughs) That's not good enough. And I've seen, you see this, you know, and honestly, I mean, what I would say is, especially if you're dealing with an attorney, you don't want to lie to them either and cover up because they find out. And when they do, they don't take very kindly to being lied to. Yeah, that's for sure. He's Esquire uh, for serious business. <laughs> they don't just I, mean, that. I think a Bill I, and Ted's excellent adventure every time I say that. Esquire Bill and Esquire Ted. <laughs> I mean, I, I have to tell you, when I go to a hearing, I, I don't, I, and I understand we're, that uh, therapists are busy in school, so I don't hold anything against them. I don't give them a hard time. I ask some questions. I may ask some tougher questions, but the only time I ever get a little bit a little tougher, if you will, is I find, if I find that they're lying to me. Or the other thing, a, a sort of a pet peeve is, is if, and it's not so much a speech language, but more school psychologists, if I feel like they're covering up some sort of a bullying issue. That's another thing that sort of gets to me. Um, and those are the times when I really will push back a lot harder. But if it's, if it's just a speech and language person who's sort of overwhelmed or, you know, is trying their best and they just, even if they messed up, you know, I don't hold, I, I don't push them on that. I make, I mean, I'll, I'll bring that out of them, but I'm not going to be nasty about it. Yeah. Well, and that whole thing is growth. That's what we're talking about. Is like, I feel like through those experiences, you're like, oh crap, I really didn't have the data for this. And that is something I really need to focus on that even though, you know, I think this is best, this is what I need to do moving forward with my students. Yeah. And what I was going to say about that too is um, our caseload sizes and paperwork requirements, um, that's not the student's fault. And nor should anything be taken away from that student because of it. And so this is a whole other conversation and argument that needs to be had about the caseload sizes that we're given and workload and all of those other things that need to be taken into consideration. And that's up to the district. It's not 1980 and so, anymore. Yeah. And that's what we I think can't is tricky. Use, we can't use that excuse that we're just really, really busy and overwhelmed. But you do have directors that are still in that mentality that it's 30 years ago. So the recommendations, which even what's kind of funny is the recommendations that even from some of in our old district, there used to be like eight hours of built-in evaluation time into your workload a week. And if you had over 45 students, people would lose their shit because it was like, how could you ever see more than that? But then what happened is the um, demands for, you know, through law and IDEA and everything, how that's evolved, has evolved the role that we play in the school setting. But when you have directors that are still kind of of that, well, we'll just make it work. And then they keep piling on and on and on. It's, it's, it's a problem. It's a problem. I mean, one thing I would suggest is that some states actually in the, in their laws, 
actually have maximum numbers of students that providers can can work with. I know New York State definitely has this. Uh, I know Michigan does. Um, so you can look at that too. I mean, if you we're know, moving, I'm not sure you're saying, you may yeah, we're to, moving to another no, state. I said we're moving. <laughs> no, we to a state. We actually <laughs> presented um, last year at the New York City Department of Ed in the Queens districts, and when we heard about because we were talking about caseload sizes, which on average in Arizona or what, 65, 65 to 70, some people over 100 on their caseload. So when they were saying that their uh, caseloads were in the 40s, we're like, shh, don't, <laughs> don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. You have it so good yeah. here. <laughs> but it, it all impacts. It, it, you know, and we're working out. We're trying. Yeah. I think that's a slow process, too, because, again, that is state by state. Right. Yeah. Yeah, we can't fix that part overnight, but the, the giving them tools and stuff to try to help them um, collect that data is like critically important to us because we do, you know, I think our number one mission is always doing best practice for students, like what it's always about that student, you know. Um, but again, I've had plenty of sleepless nights knowing that I'm maybe not doing the best I can for a student. I think we all have come into this profession to serve and to make a difference and then, um, you know, it, sometimes we're working with students where maybe it's not in our area of expertise or, you know, maybe we don't have the tools we need or, you know, lots of things come into play with that. So I, I love this conversation because I think it was just about giving a different perspective, um, you know, that you're not out there looking for every <laughs> single thing somebody's doing wrong and just wanting to cause, you know, tension and conflict. Coming like a wrecking ball. <laughs> yeah, there are. I have, well, I have dealt with some advocates that are just wrecking balls and they go, they do their profession because they love the, the tiger kind of aspect. And I, I would sit in some of those meetings. I'm like, this is not benefiting anybody but yourself. It's yeah, not, you're, you're not working ego. for the student right, right. now. <laughs> so that does exist. I've been in those meetings too, but really I think it comes down to the families and the student and um, I was telling Sarah before we, we recorded today that I can remember years ago sitting in a meeting where the whole team was making these recommendations besides the parents, the, the school team was making these recommendations and the parents came back and they just were not having what the team was recommending. And I felt like we were making good recommendations based on data, but I went home and I was kind of venting to a family member and they're like, but you're the expert. How could the family? And I go, okay, I'm venting right now. So let me just like say that all that I just said was venting because if I was sitting at a table and I had 15 people telling me that they thought something that I didn't about my student, I mean, about my child, that's the kind of frame I would always try to bring into those meetings is that ultimately this is a parent concerned for their child and any parent, whether it be in this kind of scenario or a different scenario, that's what you do. That's your job is to protect and advocate for your child. So, you know, and sometimes we need backup because it is tricky, not just even from a um, knowledge perspective, but the emotional perspective going into these meetings. It's very, you know, there there is a lot going on that we work with students with special needs every day that, you know, all the lingo and the terminology and the, the services and, and how things operate. And parents get introduced to that at the IEP or at the MET and then maybe getting a progress report home and maybe, you know, like that kind of stuff. And I think we kind of lose perspective of that too and how that impacts um, the relationship we have with the families that we're working with. Yeah. I think it's something they call empathy. We could all yes. use a little bit more of that. Yep. <laughs> well, I do want to um, turn back to, we had kind of referenced this earlier. Um, we talk about this a lot in the presentations that we give, but I'd like to talk a little bit about the Andrew case that we've referenced a couple of times. So can you, for those of our listeners that maybe don't know a lot about this case, can you kind of do a summary and maybe how that does impact us as professionals? Sure. So Andrew F., um, the quick story is that it was a child in a Colorado school district, uh, had autism spectrum disorder, behavioral issues, a whole uh, awful lot of things. Uh, and basically the child was getting the same IEP and services year after year after year. The parents got tired of it and said, this, this is not working for our child. They removed the child put them into a private school, child made progress, and then they went back to the school district and sued them saying, you did not provide this free appropriate public education, so therefore you need to pay for my child's new school. Um, so now the way the Colorado worked is, 
basically what happens in Colorado is they had the standard of what was called the de minimis test, which is just Latin. De minimis, it just means like minimal, like that's it, the minimum. So their standard was how much progress does a child have to make? It has to be more than de minimis, so more than a little bit. I can't really quantify what that would mean, but in my mind, I just have a kid who like from one year to the next is, has these reading issues and they gain one vocabulary word from one year to the next and they made progress and that would be enough. Now, that's probably an extreme, but that's what's going on in my mind. Right, right. It's not real progress. I think we could, would all agree on that. Um, so now there was a split. They have the countries basically uh, split into 12, 13 different circuits, which is like groups of states, and their laws are sort of different. Um, there's some differentiation among these circuits and, and let's say New York is in a different circuit as compared to Colorado and some in Utah and some of the other states. So that was their, um, their interpretation of progress in New York, uh, as well as other circuits, we have a, a higher standard that's saying it's not enough to make some progress. It has to be significant or substantial progress. Um, so that was the difference. Uh, so basically based on the Colorado law, uh, they said, well, since this child made a little bit of, of progress, it was good enough, and that's all the school district had to do. So therefore, the courts found against the parent and said, you know, we're not going to allow funding for this. So then because there was a difference in the various states, this went up to the Supreme Court, uh, and the Supreme Court looked at it and basically said, look, it, pro- it has to be real progress. Otherwise, it's meaningless. Okay, so something slightly more than trivial is not enough progress. They didn't get into exactly how much progress was enough, but they said, you know, it's got to be something significant. Uh, so then they overruled it and basically sent it back down to the Colorado um, courts, who eventually, using this new standard, approved the, or I should say, found in favor of the parent for um, for the private school. So that's a little bit of the legal aspect of it. Um, but now sort of the, um, the result of this, everyone was kind of looking at this and saying, well, this is amazing. This is great. This is excellent. Um, it, it's the jury still out as to how much of an effect this actually has. Uh, I know in the year and a half or so after it happened, there were some, uh, studies done of cases that were being, um, uh, tried and they didn't see much of a difference at all. I can tell you in New York, we're not seeing a huge difference either. We still have to see what's going to happen. Um, but but you already not- had a standard you said of progress being significant or s- substantial. So that would be a difference than maybe these other circuits that didn't have that same expectation. Correct. Right. So you would we would think to, that we would see more of a, a difference in, and I know in that circuit you've got Utah and Colorado. So I would expect to see some differences there. We'll see. But again, in New York, I mean, basically the the, uh, the cases we've had out here, uh, the courts are basically saying, oh, you see, we were right. And then, you know, they keep the standard the way that was. And it's just like that constantly. Um, now, some other things that, that I was talking about that you might see some of a difference is, and we still have to see how it plays out, uh, is that they definitely, the court definitely said, look, we're giving a lot of deference to uh, to the schools and to the providers in the schools. I'm giving them a lot of deference as to what they think is best for the child. Um, but by the time it gets to a hearing, they should be able to have some sort of uh, cogent explanation for what the child needs. Um, so what I'm interpreting that as is that once you get to the hearing, that the deference towards the schools should be less than it was. We'll have to see what happens with that. Um, there's some other things as well that might come about that might be helpful, but the jury still is still out, and it's just not uh, as amazing of a decision as a lot of people think. But again, in certain states, it might be. You know, maybe they'll see more of a difference. We still have to say. Well, and really, the goal is is that we should bring a lot of data, all of the team members, including the family, including you know the teachers and the related service providers, um, and all be able to show that data and be able to analyze the data as a team to come up with, you know, to be able to to agree for the programming for that student. So that's where I think, again, we we kind of touched upon that. That can be tricky is that when teams, if we're just going on the uh, deference to the school team, but they don't always have the data to back up their choices, that's where you can get in trouble as a a school team. Sure. 
And, and, and I mean, that's important. Again, when that comes into play is it's not the child who did really well and is having progress. And I look back and I say, oh, you don't have the data. You know, I'm bringing this for a child where you really needed the data. You know, I'm bringing a case where the child's struggling, hasn't made progress in the year, and there's no data taking place. And I say, well, why didn't you look at this six months ago? Right. You know, I, I, the child has 12 goals over the course of the year. They've met none of their goals. Why didn't you tell us that five months ago, six months ago? So right. yeah. that's, you know. Wasted a half a year of that kid's life. Yeah. That's I mean, the mindset shift, you know, that we've got. I, I, when you say that and I hear it. It, you know, it resonates with me. And I think, yeah, why did I wait six months? Because again, if this was your child, and that's what I always think yeah. of, like, if this is your child, would that be okay? If, you know, would, right. would you want to see your child go for a whole year? Take special education out of the equation. If they were in general education and made no progress for a year, and then you told me at the end of the year, well, we're just holding it back, you know, surprise. Yeah. Right. Like, you know, that would not fly. So I don't think that that, you know, when we equivalent that to special education, it's the same thing. It shouldn't be a surprise at the end of the year that surprise, it's the same goals or right. surprise, there's been no progress. It should be, you know, really keep an eye on your data. If the kid's not making progress, change some things, document how you've changed it. Because then if we have somebody like, Lloyd Donders Esquire involved. I would hope none of you ever have to meet in person. <laughs> Just kidding. He's very pleasant. He's actually lovely. Yeah. <laughs> but um, then you can show that I think that's where we get in trouble is that even if you did do those things, if maybe I did say, oh, I don't think they're making progress. I'm going to do this differently, this differently, this differently. And I never wrote it down anywhere. How do I mean, hell, yeah. I can't remember what I did last week. Let alone if I remember like, oh, I did in the first quarter really try to shift these things like this for this child. And um, yeah, I think that's the key is this is not, you know, we, we talked about this a little bit at the beginning too. Like the last thing we want to do is have somebody listen to this podcast episode and go, you know, I'm done. I'm out <laughs> I can't do this. This just is like too much for me. You know, the idea is, is it's just document, take yeah. Data, review progress consistently. Do yeah. not wait until progress report time. Do not wait until the end of the IEP to really analyze how that student's doing with those um, areas that you had decided to target. So I think that's, it, it really, you know, even when I'm saying this out loud, it doesn't sound that complicated. No, and look, I'm not doing this podcast. Yeah, I'm not doing this podcast for business. Like, I'm, I'm really trying to do this to help you, honestly. I mean, to help the kids, but also to help you avoid meeting people like me. Yeah. Again, I'm very nice, but, you know, this is what, you, what should be done, and you will have better results because of it. Um, and then you won't have to deal with, you know, the hearings as much. I mean, you still have some, but not nearly as many. Yeah, because I, I always do think like, you know, it's it, perspective is everything. And so like, I do hear these stories of like, oh, these meetings and the parents and they're all so difficult and everybody's, you know, <laughs> it's all just so ridiculous and, you know, all of these things. But I, I'm sure that that you're not taking a case that you don't genuinely see that there's something wrong. Well, and the idea that what you said that oftentimes is after two to three years of buildup. So think yeah. about the relationships that are, you know, how much frustration builds up that when it gets to the point that parents are eliciting the help from outside professionals, it's just, it's almost like game over at that point where it's, I don't have trust in my school team anymore because I have given them my trust and I feel like they haven't done well with that. So then I'm getting this outside support. So I think we have to keep that perspective in mind that it's, you know, this is just a parent trying to do right by their child, period. Right. And how would you feel in that same situation? Right. Yeah. And look, there definitely are parents I speak to and like parents want what's best for their children. We all do. Right. And that's fine. But by law, schools don't have to do what's best for their children. They only have to do what's appropriate. Um, So there are plenty of times parents come to me and they say, you know, my child's not making enough progress. She should be doing better in writing. She should be doing better in this. And I look at the IEP and I say, you know, they're doing okay. Like, yeah, should they be making more progress? Yeah. Should they be getting more speech and language and more reading? Probably. But, you know, is legally, do I think I'm going to be able to get it? No. Well, and I'm glad you bring this up because I don't think everything is the burden of the school district. No. 
So, and I think that's where things can get hairy with families too sometimes is that, you know, more services that, that we are providing access to curriculum. That is our whole role in special education. And so if there is progress, then, you know, and plus I think sometimes there's that, um, we used to have this kind of thing in our district where if anybody was considering moving a child to a more restrictive placement, they would need to go to this team to kind of bounce off what are other interventions we can try before we even consider something like that. More restrictive. And so I know um, there was one student that was, it was like a full inclusion kind of student. I believe the student um, had Down syndrome and was in kindergarten. And the teacher was like, he can only count to 24 or whatever it is. And, and one of the members of this team goes, are you kidding me? That's awesome. That's amazing. <laughs> you got this kid to count to 24? And the teacher was kind of like, uh, what? Like, wait, I was waiting for you to... Be. So I think sometimes we see that with parents and with um, the resource teachers or speech paths is that, you know, we have to understand that kids evolve on different progress timelines and that small gains can actually be significant and substantial gains depending on the student. So we, again, we have to kind of keep that framed into who the student is, where are they, where do we want to move them in a year and have data to show either way that, you know, that we're making that progress or if we're not, what are we doing to try to fix that? Right. That's important. All right. I think I feel good about this. I, I do like too. I'm- is there anything else that you would like, feel like if you could, you know, while you've got the ears of these SLPs, anything else we didn't cover? Um, I feel like we went through. Yeah, I ticked off everything on my notes that I wanted cool. to get to. Awesome. I'm so excited. We were so thrilled when you reached out. And right away, we were like, heck yes, we want to do this. Now, I will say, um, I was a little concerned when I heard saw that the podcast you listened to was called I Used to Pull Present Levels Out of My Beep. <laughs> Please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought, wait, and he still wants to record with us? <laughs> It's okay. I sent him some smart blog posts too. Oh, good. Okay, good. Oh, I I thought I definitely need to teach them something. (laughs) You're not. Stand in line, Lloyd Donders, Esquire. Stand in line. Okay. Well, this is where thank you again for your time and for sharing your knowledge with our audience. We super appreciate it. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. Very and we can maybe do a follow-up, but we'll, we'll compile any of the references or things that were made in the podcast episode, but I think this could be a really cool blog post too. So Definitely. maybe we can collaborate uh, with some other things in the future. That would be great. I'm looking All forward right. to it. All right. Thank cool. you. Bye. Thanks so much for having me.